Church, that song we just sang, when peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You know, it's not wrong to want to question that. Maybe you have some specific reasons that cause you to. How can it be well with our souls? How can it be well with our souls? You know, deservedly, moms in the room today, I hope, have received a lot of recognition and appreciation already from those who call them mom. I've been called out already myself. No, I have not called my mom yet today. Yes, I will. But, but moms, the, the hug or the phone call or the handmade or heartfelt cards that you received today, they were nice, they were deserved, they were appreciated, I'm sure, but let's face it, they can't bring peace to the storms in your life to the real troubles that we have, can they? They don't fix exhaustion or worry about who our family members are or becoming. They don't fix the yearning we feel to make a difference in the world, to leave a legacy. They don't fix us wanting to be seen and cherished or successful. That card didn't change those things today. How can we have peace When our life is filled with trouble. How can we? How can we have peace when our life is filled with trouble? Jesus seemed to think he had an answer to that. And so I invite you to join with me in John chapter 16, verse 33. One verse for us this morning. John 16, 33. Jesus shared this just Moments before, really, his arrest and then execution, he shared it in an upper room with his disciples. And these were the very last words John records for us that Jesus shared in this conversation with his disciples in the upper room. After sharing this with the disciples, from John's point of view, Jesus next turns his attention to God the Father in a prayer in John chapter 17, that we'll turn our attention to in the weeks to come. But today, we hear him say, at the end of his lengthy, greatest of conversations, perhaps, John 16, 33. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me... You may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus begins here. Let's pay attention to him. 
saying, I have said these things to you. Generally, probably everything that he said in the upper room, everything we've spent six months sharing. But here in this immediate moment, we see it in chapter 16, Jesus has said some variation of, I have said these things or I have not said these things seven times. He's been speaking of the world's hatred. We taught already through this chapter that sin hates God. Sin hates Jesus, his righteousness, his light, his truth. Sin hates Jesus. We've seen that. It hates the glory of God, and it just may kill those who love the glory of God. Jesus has been saying, this world will hate you. And he said these things, he said, seven times. Because the world doesn't know the Father, that's why they hate you. The world will hate you, though I didn't tell you that before now. Though I used figures of speech to explain it to you. Though sorrow now has filled your heart because I've said that to you. The world will hate you, but you will remember I told you this already, he said. He said, the world will hate you, but now that I've said these things to you, you will not fall away. And here he says, I've said to you, the world will hate you. I've said to you these things, that in me you may have peace. And I hope that this word of peace will be good news to us today. But let's not skip to the good news past the circumstance in which Jesus shared this. He says... Speaking of these things, the, the world's hatred, right? Yeah, yeah, speaking of the world's hatred, he, he gets back to the point. In the world, he says, you will have what? In the world, you will have tribulation. Happy Mother's Day. In the world, you will have tribulation. Perhaps, maybe most appropriately so. Back to the curse. In pain you will bring children into the world, Eve. Yes, Adam, there will be thorns and sweat in your labor. In the world you will have tribulation. In the world, believers have trouble is ultimately what Jesus is getting after. In the world, believers have trouble. And we've seen that over the last few weeks and all sorts of complexity and angles. This is the context, though, that Jesus claims he brings peace into. Trouble, tribulation, hatred by the system of humanity that has rebelled against him. And note that it's a promise. We love to cling to the promises of God. And yet, here is a promise that we may not love. You will have trouble. You will have tribulation. We should expect it. Jesus had shared earlier in this conversation, John 15, that if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. It would be less troubling for you here in life, perhaps. But because you are not of the world, the world hates you. So, let's just admit it. The sin in our lives... And me and you and your family members, the sin that enslaves our loved ones and strangers who don't know God, it causes us trouble. And I didn't make it on any of the Hallmark cards for today. Because we dug the pit ourselves. 
because the pit hates anyone who has made it outside. The story of humanity is it's a bitter twist. God created this world and humanity in beauty and goodness and perfection, but sin corrupted creation. Our rebellion turned us against the one who we were made to know. And it constantly turns then even his good gifts into tribulation, into idols, into problems. Life in the world is a life of trouble for everyone. Life in the world for a believer, especially then, is one of hostility and tribulation. Now, if Jesus says that you will have trouble in life, I imagine we could be maybe intellectually honest enough with ourselves right now to wonder, well, wait a second then. Am I allowed to want it to not be troubling? Because I submit that most of us would prefer it that way. Right? Are we even allowed to want it to be otherwise? Are we allowed to want good gifts? Are we allowed to want to sleep in and have breakfast in bed and have everyone do what we want for a change? Or like, am I allowed to want this? It seems wise maybe to answer it this way. We ought to live a life that's all about Jesus and then receive from him good and bad with praise. We ought to live a life, first and foremost, that is all about him. And then, as we do that, receive from him both good and bad the same with praise. Because we can receive good from God. And God gives good gifts to both the just and the unjust. The evil and the righteous. Sometimes God gives good gifts. I mean, steak or friendship or springtime at last or laughter or sermons that end five minutes sooner than any of us expected them to. You will get no such good gift today, my friends. We steward and receive these good gifts from God. We are allowed to have them for kingdom purposes that draw our hearts and our love back to the giver of those gifts. We just don't set our hopes in those good gifts, right? A beautiful day, a, a lovely garden, a house that's filled with cheerful laughter of children, the quiet neighborhood that you wish you lived on, a great health season of life, a delicious feast that someone else prepared and someone else is doing the dishes for. Yes, good gifts exist. These can, though, make it hard to want the kingdom of God. These can make us want to hold them for ourselves instead of investing them in kingdom impact. These can get hold of our hearts. Maybe, especially on a day where we honor and recognize significant part of the parenting team, moms, we recognize the danger and, and pain it can be. When God says, as we dedicated ourselves to, again, this morning, both as parents and as a church family, that children are an inheritance, that they are gifts from God, that they are meant to be arrows that are sent out into the world on his kingdom mission, that he uses 
the people he has created and recreated in him for his kingdom purposes, it can be easy to want them and then hold on to them and to think and feel and cling to them as our own and not be willing to invest them in God's ways according to God's will and then to release them for God's kingdom purposes, even when it means perhaps a lifetime apart from them or uh, choices that they make to invest their life and time and money for his benefit in a way that isn't maybe our benefit. You know, these are hard moments. Good things can point you to the best thing or they can take the place of it. So as we receive good gifts from God, we ought to ask ourselves a question, church. What are good things doing to you? What are good things doing to me? Today, perhaps you will experience good gifts from God. Run it through that filter. What are these good things doing to me? Am I driving home in a car to a house with a roof with people inside who love me? What are these good things doing to my heart? Is it knitting me into a kingdom purpose, an adoration of who God is, or is it knitting me into here and now and this world and my good for now? Because we ought to live a life that's all about Jesus and receive good with praise, but also expect trouble in life, Jesus says. Because the world is ultimately against the things of God. We don't expect praise or reward or understanding from the world or our family or our co-workers when we're following Jesus. I mean, if you're getting that, maybe the world has changed. Or maybe we have. Yet here is the sovereign goodness of God. While we are to expect trouble, we know that he uses trouble in our lives, tribulation in our lives, loss and heartache in our lives for our ultimate good when we are in him. Working all things together for good to them who love him and who are called according to his purpose. He is sovereign over our chaos and our tragedies. So maybe we ask a similar question with a confident undertone. Not only what are good things doing to you, but what are bad things doing to you? What are bad things doing to you? In Scripture, we know that answer. That in Christ, they are being worked together for your ultimate good. Yes, perhaps sorrowfully at hardship and pain and loss. Yes, perhaps infuriatingly at injustice or violence or betrayal, but never wasted, always transforming us and bringing glory to our maker. In the world, believers have trouble. And so the goodness the peace, the victory that Jesus offers, yes, it's not the same goodness that the world offers. It's not the same. If you're looking for that worldly goodness, I'm afraid to say you may find it in life. But what Jesus offers is better and sure. 
Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Yes, in the world believers have trouble, but in Jesus, he says, believers have peace. In Jesus, believers have peace. What is peace? We've been saying all through this series that biblically, peace is not merely the absence of hostility, but the presence of full restoration, of reconciliation. That's this Hebrew understanding of the term shalom. Here Jesus said, erene, peace, but contextually, culturally, this restoration, wholeness. Not the absence of problems or the absence of annoyance, but the accomplishment of everything being as it ought to be. Does that sound like something that you and I would like to have? You are allowed to be enthusiastic in your reply. <laughs> Is that something that you and I would like to have? How can we know it? Jesus says that peace comes in him. Peace comes in me, he says. Well, in living and dying in our place for our sins, when he calls us to repent and believe in him, we then have that peace. Think of Romans 5 that says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In our Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace with God through the justification he offers by faith. Because we don't deserve peace, but in Jesus, we're given the opportunity to know it by grace. Peace with God was needed and then becomes an objective reality for everyone who's believed in Jesus. It can be an objective reality for you if you believe. Now, there may be some of us who would admit in our moments of honesty Okay, but does the peace I could have with God fix my life, fix my finances? Does it fix my mistakes? Well, maybe peace with God doesn't even feel like the priority to us. For Jesus, though, evidently our peace with him, with God, is what dictates our peace in life. Our peace with God is what dictates our peace in life. Our relationship with him is so all-encompassing, according to Jesus' perspective, that when peace is achieved there, it's sufficient to provide peace for every other area in our life. Is that the way we feel about peace with God? Think about a, a wedding I did this last, right at New Year's Eve, basically. 2022 was winding down. This young couple were getting married. And, and as they were sharing their story with me leading up to their wedding day, I asked them, you know, how did you meet? What was dating like? You know, I'm kind of trying to feel out, like, do you guys love each other? I'm hoping the answer is yes. This is going to be an awkward conversation with me if it's not. And, and they started talking about their you know, relationship together, the story of who they are and how they became who they are. So fun to understand people's stories together. And, and this bride-to-be, she kind of giggled, and she said, you know, the groom, he, 
he was the one who kind of initiated this and was planning all the dates and everything. And, and then she said, admittedly, he's not very good at being romantic. And he is horrible at planning dates. And I was interested, and I said, please tell me more. I would love to laugh at the groom's you know, expense in front of you right now. Let's go. And, you know, he was chuckling along and agreeing. And she said, well, you know, he, our first date, he invited me out, and he was planning the whole thing, and I was kind of excited about this. And so we went out on this date, and it was like a pretty shady restaurant. Like, not cute and not, like, clean. None of the above. <laughs> and it wasn't good either. And I, I wanted to give him, like, a pass because it was the first day. And, like, maybe he just doesn't know the restaurant scene in town or whatever, right? And so we went on the second one. And it was a different restaurant. But somehow also, like, the other shady restaurant in East Lansing. And... Uh, and I was kind of impressed that he was finding all the bad ones. I'm starting to wonder what all this is about, right? Like, and then the next one and this one, every single date was awful. None of the food was good. None of the ambiance was right. All of the things went wrong. The, it would be closed when they thought it was open. They were always just kind of like cascading through this courtship, if you will. But what she said put a whole new understanding on their relationship. She said was, but that didn't matter to me because I really liked him and he really liked me. And so this whole dates going horribly thing, it it was a non-issue, right? Our relationship, our affection for each other, our care for one another, who we could see in one another, that was the only thing we needed to see here. The, the date going according to plan or him saying a, a smooth and romantic thing or the dessert being impressive, not, none of those things ultimately mattered to us. Understanding the purpose redefines the experience in life. And our purpose is in God. In him we live. We move. We have our being. And so when we understand our purpose ultimately is caught up in him, it redefines our experience of what living was supposed to be, what the purpose of living is supposed to look like. In this sense, then, Jesus is communicating that a life at peace has nothing at all to do with how we're feeling life is going. In Jesus, peace is accomplished. All the other things are just details. Unrealized dreams can't take your peace. The doctor's biopsy report can't take your peace. Your adulterous spouse can't take your peace. Your straying children can't take your peace. Political climates or global terror or school shootings or racial injustices or financial disaster or unemployment or memories of your failure and shame or feelings of distance from God. None of those things can take your peace because peace is only in him and always in him. In Jesus, believers have their peace. So Jesus says, but take heart. But take heart. I have what? I have overcome 
the world. I have overcome. Which is a curious statement for a guy who is about to be executed. I have overcome. You know, grammatically, this is what's called a proleptic statement. A proleptic statement. Stating as certain in the present tense something that is yet to happen in the future. Stating as certain in the present tense something that's yet to happen in the future. Proleptic. It's a prolepsis. It's confidently living now out of what's going to occur. That's what Jesus does and says right here. And you and I, man, we'd like to live that way. We'd love to manifest what's going to happen in our lives. Knowing that we're going to ace that test or make ends meet or be that better person. We try our very best to hustle ourselves into that. But we can't control today, let alone tomorrow, our future or our lives. But God can. And here Jesus says he did. On the night before his death, he says, I have overcome. And what happened? Well, we just talked about it at Easter. Paul would say it to the Colossians this way. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. What will happen ultimately? The Lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Jesus knew that he would and he will overcome the world already through his cross and resurrection today and one day as he ultimately makes all things new. Jesus said he knew that victory was his. And so even with betrayal and torture and the cross and the grave hours away, he says, I've overcome. And get this, his victory becomes our victory in him. His victory becomes our victory in him. John, in hearing this statement and responding to it by writing this account, by inspiration of the Spirit, goes on to write in a letter to the churches, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who purchased our faith? Jesus did. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 1 John 5, 4. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe in Jesus? Then you overcome with the one who has overcome. Already. He has overcome, and our victory is sure with him. His victory is sure in us. And what does he call us to do in light of that? What's his application point? I have overcome the world. What did he say? But take heart. Take heart. Have courage. Don't be afraid. Some scholars would, would hear it saying, be of good heart. Be of good cheer. This is your attitude now in life. Take heart. 
we can have courageous peace in the victory of Jesus. There's one thing we see in this passage today. It's that we can have courageous peace in the victory of Jesus. In the same way that Jesus could know the presence of the Father and the peace of his victory in the middle of trouble, so can we. So can we. We're invited to have courageous peace in our lives of trouble, living out now a confidence in the victory that's already in the process of unfolding, that's already accomplished, that's already begun, and that will one day fully unfold. That victory overshadows and overwhelms everything else in our life. And thinking about an example, you know, I think of the Apostle Paul, who doesn't seem like life is going well for him. He's being faithful to God, but put in chains and in prison, being shipped off to Caesar, where he will die. Executed as well. And on that journey, they run into a storm. That lasts days and days and days, and the professional sailors are despairing for life. Sure that this is the end of the journey. But God has a plan. God is sovereign over all storms, and God reveals some of his plan for Paul to him directly. And Paul shares that with the sailors, using the same words that our Savior here says to us. Take heart. He says in Acts 27, yet I urge you, Fellow sailors, fellow prisoners with me, I urge you to take heart. There will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted to you all those who sail with you. So, he says... Take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Man, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. We're going to lose the ship, which incidentally feels important on the ocean. But take heart, I have faith. That it will be exactly as I have been told. Man, that is proleptic peace, isn't it? I know now, out of the reality of what I know will be. Friends, God's word has appeared to us today with a vision, with a truth, with a reminder that is just as compelling as the one Paul received. God's word tells you exactly what will be and what already is. Jesus has overcome. You can have peace already. Peace in the middle. Peace without resolution yet because your peace believer is in Jesus. It's in him. All of that brings me to two questions. And two realities. You know, our, our anxieties, don't they reveal the source of our peace? 
Your anxieties, my anxieties, they reveal the source of our peace. Do your anxieties reveal that your peace comes from Jesus? As a church, I think we ought to do some introspection as we look at this passage today. Do my anxieties in life reveal that my peace comes from income or from Jesus, from health or from Jesus, from national stability or family atmosphere or Jesus? What is it that my anxieties reveal I'm placing my trust in? Maybe as you contemplate on that, we could say it another way. The way Colossians 3.15 says it, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Judge, decide, determine your state of heart. You now have this peace. Let it rule, Paul says. Because something rules our hearts. Something rules your heart. In Christ, you have a choice. Praise the Lord to live Life ruled by the person and victory of Jesus, or to invite sin back on over, to invite the world back on over, to invite micromanaging things back on over. Who are you inviting to rule your heart? Who am I inviting to rule my heart? Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. As we ask those questions, let's, let's observe something. What's courageous peace look like? When courageous peace rules in our hearts, you will hurt and lament deeply. Church, don't mistake, take heart, for put on a happy face. That is not a mature, holistic understanding of what God is saying here. When courageous peace rules your heart, you will hurt and lament deeply. We don't need to have a peppy attitude 24-7 because in this world, we will have trouble. In fact, I think the peace that we have in God gives us confidence to descend even deeper into the depths of lament and sorrow and outcry before injustice or pain or loss because we know the path back to peace. So we don't have anything to be afraid of. I can see the pain or the loss or the injustice around me, and I have the one ticket people need to enter into that with those around us, to enter into that myself, knowing what the outcome ultimately is, what most defines me already is determined to be. I don't have to avoid it, afraid of what I'll find when I go there, afraid of despair consuming my life. I can enter that and mourn and grieve more deeply than my neighbors can who don't know Jesus. I ought to because I do know Jesus. Weeping then, yet always rejoicing. Yes, you will hurt and lament deeply, but when courageous peace rules your heart, you will have good cheer invincibly. When courageous peace rules your heart, you'll have good cheer invincibly. Yes, I'm saying both of those things together. We hold them both 
weeping outside the tomb, all the while knowing what's going to happen when Jesus says, come out. You can even lose your time and your money and your life in ways that reveal these aren't lost to me. They're invested for the greatest purpose, my purpose. I can take heart, receiving both good and bad with praise. I know the outcome. I know it's for my good. Jesus wins, and I win with him. That is the mantra that informs our soul at every moment. That is courageous peace. In the world, and yet also in Christ in trouble and at peace. His victory, our sure hope. When we can have courageous peace, because Jesus has us and has the victory. And I want to thank him for that good news today.